This episode of Experience by Design is brought to you by the Experience Research Society, also known as Expresso. Expresso is a global community of academics and practitioners that seeks to foster cross-disciplinary collaboration around experiences to create scientific and societal impact. Expresso means to make experience research relevant to experience-centric businesses and industries. And who doesn't need a little more Expresso in their life? Check out Expresso at experienceresearchsociety.org. Hi, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. Today, for all of you EXD aficionados, we have a very special episode. Recently, Adam, design strategist Jen Briselli, and I, is that right? Is that right English? Is that proper English? And I? I it think fe- so. It feels right. I, yeah. I, Adam, Jen, and I had the opportunity to speak at the South by Southwest conference event happening, whatever it's called, down in Austin, Texas, where we were able to engage a packed room. And I packed, I mean, packed. If anybody of you have COVID nightmares, you have not done well in this room. It was (laughs) packed. Packed room of marketers, brand strategists, designers, consumer insight specialists, researchers, authors, thought leaders, and whoever else ends up going to South by Southwest. And what a what a crew it was. There was quite Indeed. a eclect selection of humanity traipsing through the streets of downtown Austin. And, and it how. was a wild experience. And being from Texas, Adam was felt very at home because there were cowboy hats and boots. Unironically, importantly. Uh, and importantly, and tacos for at least one meal a day. Yes, we had one ta- one taco meal a day, which you have to do if you're down there. And you might remember Jen yeah. from one of our earlier podcasts where we were talking about systems design, systems thinking, and also scientific communication. Now Jen is at her new company, Topology, which is an experience design consulting firm. And we were super, super excited that Jen was able to make the trip down to South by and be part of the panel where we were engaging this broad cross-section of professionals and interested parties on social science and marketing. Exactly right. And it was one of the coolest things to see that, that there was that much interest in engagement around the topic. And so to kind of uh, bring y'all into the conversation, if you weren't at South by, the question that was animating our panel was, what does it look like to bring a social science and systems level approach to marketing and branding? Or another way to say this is, what can marketers learn from social scientists if they want to better understand customers, markets, brands, and opportunities? So it's an area that's near and dear to our hearts here at EXD, as uh, as loyal listeners know and as new listeners are about to find out. And in this talk we're going to run through, we explore themes like culture, meaning, systems, marginalized groups, social identity, switching perspectives, and managing complexity. So there's a lot in this 45-minute conversation. So we're really excited to be able to bring it to you uh, in this space. And we're also, one of the cool things, we'll be providing some tools that you can use to think like a social scientist or to bring more of a social science perspective, systems-level perspective to your practice and your work. One of the cool things we did using another guest Wanda um, from Catchwords, we had our own catchword. And if you text SXSW23 EXD to the number 411321, you will be able to get a one page double sided summary of the key takeaways from our session, as well as descriptions of the tools we provided. So again, you can text SXSW23 hyphen EXD to 411321 to get a summary, a, a, a synopsis, a, a brief version of everything we're talking about in this episode. So feel free to text away and we hope you enjoy our session from South by Southwest. going to go ahead and kick off. So thanks for, for hopping in here with us and joining us today. Uh, we are excited to be here with you all back at South by Southwest. So thanks for coming out to hear us have a conversation and get in conversation with you all about 
customers and context and how we can think about social sciences for marketing, for branding, across all these different parts and pieces. And so today we'll do something a little bit experimental where we have some ideas and slides and provocations to think with as part of our conversation. Um, and so we invite you to think about them with us, and we're going to kind of go back and forth and have a conversation across these. We're going to share some tips and insights uh, and a bunch of uh, interesting kind of angles to think with, and uh, we'll have some good time for Q&A afterwards as well. But my name is Dr. Adam Gemwell, and I am a design anthropologist, a business anthropologist also. I have worked in consumer insights for a number of years, consumer foresights. Uh, most recently, I was working at the intersection of digital ethnography and big data, uh, working kind of on front-end innovation work. I've also done a lot of in-field ethnographic research, multi-sided pieces, you know, in different parts of the world, uh, mostly in uh, Latin Americas, where a lot of my spaces spent time with. Uh, and as well, I just love thinking about how we can bring more social science thinking into the business world. And so we're really excited that you all joined us and uh, we're excited to kick off. So I'll pass over to Jen to uh, say hello next. Yeah, social science, yes. Yeah. Um, hi guys, I'm Jen. Um, I am the um, co-founder and principal at a small design agency called Topology. Um, but I have been in the world of experience strategy and design strategy for over a decade. And my origin story is actually... Um, way far back in physics. I have a degree in physics, and then I got a degree in education, and I taught for a while, and then I got another degree in experience design. I spend a lot of my time these days in um, spaces where I'm thinking service design, UX design, strategy, and in particular system science and systems thinking, which was which is a thread that's kind of gone all the way through my journey all the way to the beginning. So excited to talk more about all of that. Hey everybody, my name is Gary David, and if you're confused by the name, my grandfather's name was David David. That is a, actually a true He's story. He's a comedian. It's a true story. I am a professor of sociology and experience design at a small private business university outside of Boston called Bentley University. I'm also a design sociologist and a clinical sociologist, which means I use sociological methods, theories, and concepts to help clients, communities, organizations design solutions to the challenges they're facing. I'll also add, with Adam Gamwell, I am the other part of Experience by Design podcast, where we explore experience designs of all kinds. So you can check us out, and Jen was a guest on our show, and so we got to know Jen, and you can check us out wherever you get podcasts. The, the main idea, the big thing we want to kind of tackle here today, and we're glad you're all here with us, is this notion that by understanding our target audience's world, or worlds, because we often live in more than one world, we can connect with them in a more meaningful and impactful way. And that might seem really obvious. I hope it seems really obvious, and it should seem really obvious, and we could stop there, and that would be great. That's it. Show's over. Thank you very much for coming. Um, but the challenge becomes how often we lose sight of that. And there's both good reasons and bad reasons for that. And so one of the things we wanted to talk about today, and we want to explore with you today, is as social scientists and as ethnographers and as systems thinkers, the tips and tricks and tools we use to stay connected to the worlds of those we're looking to design ideally for and with. One of the things I talk to my students about, I teach a course on design experiences as well as ethnography of experience design, there's designing at, designing for, designing with, and even designing against. And we need to think about which one we want to do and why, right? And so designing for, I, you know, optimally, designing with ideally, by understanding who they are, not as individuals necessarily, but also as collectives. And as a sociologist, as an anthropologist, we definitely think in terms of those collectivities and those groupings. And so the question becomes, that all sounds really good, right? Great. But how do we do it? How do we explore people's worlds to create better experiences? And we're definitely not the first ones to talk about this, but one of the things that we do tend to notice in the field of design is that things that we learned as sociologists, anthropologists, educators, physicists, are not new ideas, but where they come from are often forgotten. There are many times where I'm looking at something and people are like, oh, we discovered that there's this thing called culture. I'm like, that's nice. We've been talking about that for a couple hundred years. Or when someone says the area of experience is you know, a brand new area, I'm like, well, tell that to Plato. I mean, these are things that go pretty far back, right? And so how can we reconnect what we do as social scientists with the work that people do in work? And I have to say, we're to blame. I'm an academic. I work at a university. We've done a horrible job at translating what we do and what we know 
to audiences that can use what we do and what we know. Yes, you have. Yes, we have. <laughs> Guilty. Because we're never taught how to do it. I want to add really quick, too, and we were talking about this earlier. One of the things that has been so present for me as I've been listening to sessions here and, of course, just what we do every day in our practice, meaning all of us, we, we, not just we on stage, there's an interesting tension I've picked up on, too, between folks who, who align themselves with um, the craft or the practice of branding, marketing, et cetera, um, attention between that world and like experience design. And I, I find, and I say experience design, whenever I say that today, I mean the broadest version. I mean UX, I mean research, I mean service design, et cetera. But there's this like kind of a, I'm an experience designer, I don't do marketing. And then there's like market research who are busy trying to defend, you know, how they are seeking to understand people and their motivations. And I don't think that's true everywhere. It's not this universal rift, but I definitely pick up on that. And so I think part of what we're here to say today, you hear us talk a lot about design and experience design. We're probably not going to say the words marketing or or ad or branding very often, even though it's right in the title, because the argument is that we're really all trying to achieve the same things. There are different windows into the same room, and we're all trying to understand humans and then serve their needs better, and everyone's playing an important role in that process. And to um, the point we just made, there are all these disciplines that have all these tools and have had them for hundreds of years. So if we can surface even one or two for them for you today, and you take that away, and that's all you get, mission accomplished. So a little context I wanted to add there. Yeah, and I think that, that thinking about that as well is something, because oftentimes like when working in consumer insights and foresights, you'll see people in the research teams, they'll be either doing kind of insights work, going into the field, doing digital work, social listening, and oftentimes they ladder up into marketing to Jen's point. So they may not explicitly say I'm in the marketing or branding team, some of them do, but so thinking about where you are in your organizations or kind of how the maturity of, of research is in each of your spaces. Um, so we are kind of talking across those spaces, and even as you can tell here why we have an anthropologist a design strategist and a sociologist as, as three thinkers to talk about these ideas with you. Um, I think one of the things we want to champion with you today is this idea that we actually can, and we should be crossing the aisle, as it were, um, and seeing those connections between it. And so ethnography is one of the ways that we'll talk about this, is kind of the methodology, but also really an approach to how we understand the human condition uh, and how this can Im- uh, help us understand the ways that we are looking at how people engage with products or services, how they're thinking about what they need, um, how they are not aware of what they might need. Um, and also, from a marketing side, how we generate need. And should we be doing that? Are there ethics around this idea? What does it mean to use different kinds of technology to understand people? So we're going to kind of think across all of these different areas uh, with you all today. And one of these areas is this notion of, of portals, too, which is a concept Gary kind of brought to my attention to think about. So tell us a little about this idea of, of portals. I can't take complete credit for it. There's a great sports anthropologist at Northeastern University in Boston by the name of Alan Klein. And I got the chance to know Alan a little bit, speak with him. And he would talk about these portals in, that as an ethnographer, you're looking for those noticings. And one of the things that can separate qualitative versus quantitative, not just methods, but mindsets, is that we're looking for that one thing that opens the world up to us. And it might not be the biggest you know, concentration of data points. It might be an outlier. And that outlier can be fascinating to allow us into people's worlds. And so we're constantly looking for those noticings. And those notice scenes can be demarcated when people go, huh, listen for the huh moment. Because that's like, okay, there's something happening here. I didn't realize that. I didn't notice that. But it opens up this space, much like Alice going through the, the looking glass or the door does. And so we're looking for those portals into worlds that allow us to explore the worlds that people occupy but we never knew existed. So this is giving us a nice, like, academic-looking definition, right? But just something for us to think about so we can level set. And when we think about the idea of ethnography, and to, to Gary's point about understanding what are the ways into people's lived experiences. And so when we think about the mindset and, and methods and approach of ethnography, it's this idea that we're trying to think through in terms of getting a sense of what is life actually like for our customers, for the people that we're trying to design for, with, and alongside, um, and to bring those experiences to life in, in unique and special ways. So in this case, too, just even this image here, thinking about this, of having a a mural painting of a first responder in an urban setting. So this is a way to think about what are we seeing in this image. And we can think about this again, obviously, as both a piece of marketing and branding in terms of getting people's awareness of what's happening. This is obviously for thinking about you know, championing the, the idea of first responders, thinking about the context of COVID and vaccinations. Like, where is this painted and why? Um, you know, and who are we displaying in the images itself? What's the messaging that we have down here? Um, and you can see this is in relationship, in this case, like to the National Portrait Gallery also. So there's a lot of things happening in this image. And so when we think about ethnography, we can even take something almost as simple, I mean, also complex, as a mural on a wall. Thinking about where it is, when was it put there, what's it trying to display, 
And then also, what are people's responses to it when they're interacting with it, when they're spending time with it, when they're passing it on the street? So for us, again, as we'll kind of we'll build on and break down this idea, ethnography is kind of, a, 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 again, the mindset that we'll bring to a lot of these, these conversations and how we're thinking about what does it mean to, to pay attention to where people are actually coming from. And so we might talk about what I like to talk about everyday ethnography or ethnographic awareness. And as an ethnographer, it's something I carry with me everywhere I go. My students will say to me, do you notice everything? And unfortunately, yes. And, there, and there, are, there are things that happen that infuriate me. I was at the grocery store once, and I was at the register checking out, and the person said, uh, did you find everything you're looking for? And I got really annoyed, because why are you asking me this question right now when I have all my stuff on the register, there are people behind me waiting for me to be done, and if I answer honestly, then they're going to be mad. If I answer dishonestly, then I violated some moral code. I'm lying to you. I don't know who you are. I apologize ahead of time for being dishonest. And it created a lot of confusion in my brain about what to do. Most of you will just say, yeah, I'm good. Right? But it's in those notice scenes that there's opportunities. And it's in those notice scenes that experience design can really bring a lot to the table, especially when we cross-pollinate from different disciplines and different areas and different ideas. Can I also ask really ask, can I add really quick? I think sometimes that people think about ethnography, and I mean that's right now that's the main the point we're making in this moment is this is one of the most important means by which you can learn about the context in the world of the people you're serving. And we can say customers, but of course customer also broad, really the humans, whether it's employees, internal, external stakeholders, just use customer as a stand-in for more broad um, categories. But ethnography isn't just a selection of tools, a bunch of methods, a bunch of checklists. It's much more that mindset or the orientation you take to your work. And that noticing that Gary's talking about, yeah, there are some people who are kind of just wired that way. You you can cultivate that in yourself. You can learn to do that. And if you are a person that is already naturally doing that, fabulous. But if you're not, today is one of those days where start challenging yourself. Hell, man, walk outside after this session and take notice of things you'd never bother to look at. I also would encourage anybody who's never heard of it, look up a concept called low latent inhibition. L-O-W-L-A-T-E-N-T. It's really just, it's part of the way the brain is wired um, that most of our brains, once we're familiar with something, it stops really noticing information about the thing that is familiar. Because if it was literally thinking about all that information constantly, it'd be overload, and our brains just can't handle all that information. It's a good evolutionary tactic, frankly. But some people tend to have um, a lower amount of that inhibition, right? The inhibition is the process by which we stop paying attention. And yes, everybody falls on a different part of that scale or that spectrum, but there are some interesting connections between folks who demonstrate or, or show low latent inhibition and things like being a highly sensitive person or having a you know sensitivity to certain types of things. And I suspect if you're here and something about this session brought you here or you're working in a field that is designed to build experiences or outcomes or materials for people to consume, you're probably already kind of at one of that end of that spectrum that primes you for this kind of thinking. So if you've never been aware of or heard of these things, I encourage you to follow your curiosity to a few of those uh, those Google searches, and that might be all it takes to kick off more ethnographic way of being in the world that doesn't require you to just follow a checklist or a method. Just we have three images up here, holism, context, and connections. And so we're looking at how everything, everything that exists within a space, we're looking at the cultural and social context in which it exists, and we're also looking for the connections as well as disconnections, which I'll talk about in one of my slides. You know, things, how things are connected, how they're disconnected, and how they might be reconnected as well. So you might think about networks. Um, we're looking at those larger spaces, the specific context that makes meaning, and also the connections within and also outside as well. As, as part of priming, if you're a visual learner, um, and, and for me too, this, this has been helpful to kind of think about this idea. So as, as Jen was kind of pointing out, when things get familiar to us, we then tend to not notice them. And one of the mantras of, of cultural anthropology is helping make the strange familiar and the familiar strange. And so it's helping retune our brains to, to, to see things that we might have been so used to that we forgot are different in different contexts. And so for me, having things like this, of just paying attention, so I like Jen's idea, like let's, let's head out after the session and see what things we notice, right? What the way people are dressed, what environments they're walking around in. Obviously, it's a hotel space, but think about how are people interacting in there, right? Does Do badges indicate different things to people? Have you noticed there's rectangular and also more vertical rectangular badges? Like, what does that indicate to people, right? Why is the lanyard a different color? How are people dressing? How close do they stand? How far away do they stand? What are they talking about? Is it in English? Is it not in English? 
all these pieces to kind of have a sense of how people are interacting with one another in this case is just a way to retune our brain. So these are just some words to put in our heads. Some of these you may see explicitly, some of them you may not, depending on how much time you spend with people. But noticing again things like environment, the spaces that we're in, the idea of symbols. Again, do I have certain jewelry on? Am I dressed a certain way? Are you dressed a certain way? How are people um, presenting themselves, as it were? And we can think about these again both in terms of if we want to create marketing at some point, but then also in this case getting a sense of what do people care about in the first place? Where are they already at? And so when we think about designing for and with and alongside people, um, a lot of it is getting understanding where they are today. And so in this case, like one of the, the challenges we say with this to think about is getting a sense of what's the space that we're in, the environments, what are the symbols? You might hear the other fancy word called semiotics as part of that. How are people then you know, showing off what the things mean that they have on their bodies or you know, how they're kind of sharing ideas? And also things like you know, ideologies in terms of what it is they think it's important to talk about. So this could obviously be part of conversation. So if you're having a conversation with some folks after this and they're talking about the importance of marketing or, man, those panelists were really weird, or whatever it is, they may give you different things to show what is important to them in terms of what they're trying to get ideologically out of a session like this. So this is, again, just a little bit of a, a brain thinker, some like key words to, to think about you know, as we're in this space together, and then also as we head out, um, that we might be more used to and don't realize that, oh, an ideology is actually shaping how I'm approaching all conversations with people. And I didn't think about that until now. So um, just some, some fun words to think with in that space. Who, who's first South by Southwest is this? Raise your hand. Mine too, oh, right? Yeah. Imagine how we all, and I include myself in this category, are going through all of these right now trying to orient ourselves to the space of culture. Right? What are the values in the conference? What are the customs? What are the symbols? What are the networks? What are the languages? Not just national languages, but professional languages. Personally, I'm like, what is this thing still? <laughs> I've been here for three days. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. It's a little this, it's a little that. We got these people over there. Who are those people over there? I don't know. I expected you all to be younger. I'm old. I'm feeling out of place. I'm feeling kind of comfortable. Rude. I don't know what's happening. I honestly have no idea what's happening. And I'm an ethnographer. I'm like, I got to figure this stuff out. Now, if I came back, now for a person who's been here for like 10 years, it's all familiar. So there's a huge strength of being a newcomer but also the people who have been around know all these things. And it's like Adam said, make the familiar strange, the strange familiar. And so we can think about how this all fits for your own experience as a newcomer as well. And then what might be done to make it easier for folks who are newcomers like us. So thinking about understanding meaning and context, one of the things, and this is going to be an academic word, apologize, uh, intersubjectivity, this notion of how do we come at shared meaning. And... We also think about indexicality, that words have meaning in context. If I say the word apple, it could be a fruit. It could be, you know, the name of Gwyneth Paltrow's child. It could be the name of a record company. It could be, you know, a computer. It could be a lot of things, right? So what's the context of an utterance? And so we have up here a mask, right? And when people would say to me something like, masks don't work, I would say, then that's great. We can save a lot of money in healthcare if doctors no longer wear, wore them when they're doing surgery. And they would go, well, not those masks. Those masks work. <laughs> it's not the mask you're, you know, in the schools. Or it's not the mask on the airplane. That one object has different meanings in different contexts, right? And, you know, dentist's office has a different meaning. Do you want your dentist in your face not wearing a mask? Eh, if they don't work, then it shouldn't matter. You know, then we can just get rid of them and people pause because they think about them differently in that context than in another context. So this is just a visual way of thinking about how one object, not just as a thing, but as a symbol, can have different meanings across different locations. This is something to think about, too, that, that a project that I did, um, again, kind of combining the big data in ethnography a few years ago, was, was around the sale of masks. And this was at the height of COVID. And so, you know, are we, how do we position masks is, is what this organization was asking if we want to manufacture them and sell them properly. And this is some of the same stuff that we found, which is really this tricky idea that obviously there's a lot of political thinking that was tied to them, as you know, over the past few years. And that shaped, again, how we would talk about them if they were sold in a convention center, if they were sold at a Walmart, if they were sold at a CVS. And so even understanding that the messaging itself has to be tailored to your specific environment and output, understanding that your target audience will not ever be the kind of same one person. So one of the things that we'll think about through this too is that even when we, if we might use, for example, personas or segmentation when we're trying to figure out who is our key constituents in the market, the research is, is really important to understand because in this case too, like how and, and who's buying masks and in what context will change, again, depending on the store, what part of the country that we're in, um, who it is that we're kind of targeting in different spaces. So let me just to think about that, like obviously we have to be, on one level a bit more nuanced we find that like marketing is getting a little bit trickier on one level, but then also 
this is kind of one of the, the things that we're trying to share here is that as we get more holistic in our thinking across you know, market research and across consumer insights, we can then actually be able to communicate to more folks as we get onto more human level, as it were. Anybody ever been in an art class before, done studio art? Raise your hand. Anybody, anybody ever been on the stand before? Yeah, me too. Solid. Right? Two people. All right, two people. Good. One of the things that I have been on the stand before, I have done figure modeling. One of the things that you'll notice that I can tell is a good artist, a, a well-trained artist versus someone who's new, is how much they step forward and step back. How much they move around. If you watch artists, if you're an artist, think about this. If you're trying to paint something, draw something, represent something, pastels, charcoal, doesn't matter. There's an importance of position, perspective, and then representation. If a person is standing in the middle and there are people arrayed around, are, is everyone going to draw the same picture? No. They're going to be different pictures based on the position of the person around the figure, the bowl of fruit, whatever. Which representation is the right one? They're all right. It's a matter of perspective. And so part of what we need to think about as experienced designers and as understanding people's worlds is understanding their position, their perspective, and how we go about representation. One of the things about ethnography is that it carries tremendous ethical obligation because we're speaking for people on behalf of them. And sometimes, given the fact we have PhDs or the, given the fact that we are the designers or that we're writing papers, our voices can carry more weight than the people themselves. And so this question of position and perspective becomes really important. So one of the things you might do is, as an artist, is move around the room. See the object in multiple dimensions. Even if you're seeing it in two dimensions from one perspective, you have to know that there's other elements to it that adds three dimensions to it. These are all things I've learned from artists. And the same thing applies to doing design work, is that we have to see that representation that the wholeness of the thing not just from where we stand, but also from where other people stand as well. And this, uh, this idea about ambiguity and context is also one of these big themes that we run into oftentimes when doing research projects. And so this is actually uh, from, from a little story I'll tell that I, I took a great American road trip down here. I live in Boston, or all of us do actually. Um, and so I, I had some extra time on my hands this, this month, and so I decided to take a road trip down here to Austin. And I was, I was passing through in Virginia, I saw this billboard on the side of the road. And that's interesting, you know, love, love makes a family. And then it got me thinking, context will make all the difference because in my head I'm thinking, okay, what is this sign trying to tell us? Um, where is it? Again, thinking about my environment, what does it mean that it's in Virginia? And for us then thinking about this question of like how personal identity will come into both how we read a sign and what it is that's gonna be communicating to others if we're trying to put it out there again in, in a marketing or branding context. And so in this case, it was getting to think about these, these ideas of in this case, what does love mean? How are they defining that? Who's defining this, right? I don't know who this artist was. Um, you know, what does it mean to make a family? What counts as a family in this context, right? And so this interesting idea that, like, to me, I think there was some interesting political subversion that was happening here, but this is how I'm reading this as an anthropologist, right? If I'm putting my, my you know, ethnographer hat on, I want to take my interpretation of that and understand this is how I'm reading the signs that I'm seeing, but then also the better work in this case is also then to talk to folks around it. How are they interpreting the sign that's there? if I'm able to, to talk to the artist of what it is that they're intended to put the sign out there. And so always trying to triangulate at least between these three axioms, right? One is what do I think is the ethnographer? What is the artist or the person putting the content out there aiming for? And then how are people receiving the message in different ways? And so this can help us to understand when and why are messages received in certain ways? Are they received as intended by the artist? Or I think some of the most interesting stuff too is then how do people unexpectedly work with this message? Right? And I think one of the beauty, like the beautiful parts of, of this message itself is that it is actually quite ambiguous. Right? It can go in many different ways. And you can all think of these different opportunities and spaces of what love could mean, what could a family mean in this case, and in, what, in, in different contexts. Right? So this is, again, this important part of, of learning to be okay with this. And it's funny because if you ever look at, or you may have seen like in, in a job description or ask for you know, a market researcher, you might see, you know, we're looking for anthropologists or uh, different kinds of, of social thinkers, systems thinkers. But then with this too, then you'll also see being comfortable with ambiguity. And so this is one of the ideas that's also, I find always tricky to kind of get 
executive or C-suite levels to be okay with ambiguity because they want their numbers, they want the answer of when, what's my KPI and when should I invest in this and when should I not. But really, as, as if you work in, in market research or in kind of the, the marketing and branding side too, that's always working with this level of what does that data actually mean? And one thing, I guess one note of encouragement I'll say too is that, um, you know, in talking with, uh, with again, some, some C-suite executive level folks um, at different organizations, you know, major, major car, car companies, for example, um, even when they have a large budget, they have a, a opportunities to get a lot of data, whether through social listening, through doing you know, in-depth interviews, through doing observational ethnography, through all these data points, they still have a really hard time saying, what do I do with all that data? Right? And so even the idea of like getting data itself doesn't mean that's the answer. So there is always going to be a work of interpretation is, is what this helps us understand and think about, which is also why the, the work that, that y'all do or that we're doing around the notions of research and, and um, this work is so important. So, I mean, always the idea is that Ambiguity will be part of it, as we're going to see. Um, interpretation is always a key part of it as well. So it's, I think, a strength of the work that, that we're able to do as, as researchers uh, is to then say, well, we're going to understand if, we, if we're triangulating these, these points again, like how do I see it as the ethnographer? How does the audience receive the message or not? And what is the intended message of the artists themselves are putting the, the content out? All these can help us then understand and make the case of why we're interpreting what we're seeing. So there are ways to, again, put both numbers and some kind of oomph behind. So if it's... We can talk about that later if folks are interested, but there is this work, there will always be some ambiguity, but again, there are tactics that we can think about to get behind that as well. And it's a, it's a good segue because as you guys have been talking, I've wanted to um, highlight something we were probably going to talk about later, but I want to bring it up now. You mentioned personas and segmenting and understanding um, the different motivations or the ways that people might be like viewing or experiencing something if they're metaphorically in different parts of that room looking at a figure from different angles. As whatever your various practice or backgrounds or roles might be, you've got different tools at your disposal. Um, ideally, you're able to do a combination of things to gather insights, quantitative, qualitative, primary, secondary, etc. But also, there is so much richness in the fields that we're part of and that others are part of that you can draw on, and part of the message is encouraging you all to do that. One field that I think is really powerful right now, I mean, I've even seen a few other sessions um, finally this year kind of starting to draw on this, is something called identity protective cognition or motivated reasoning, really in a nutshell what it means is that the brain is wired to not only see and experience things differently depending on you know who you are, what your values are, what your social in-group is, um, it actually changes the way people experience knowledge and facts. You know, It's why facts aren't enough to debunk things. It's why people have the mask kind of ideological argument that, that Gary talked about. And in the end, ambiguity which Adam was just talking about, isn't just something that we have both an ethical and, you know, ideally a value-driven reason to explore. We can also use ambiguity to our advantage because one of the most effective ways to reach multiple worldviews or values or, or audience segments is to be able to deliver things that have just enough ambiguity within them that they aren't going to completely turn off or threaten the values of the different folks you're trying to reach. So it's not that you would necessarily, and I'm speaking in such generalities, I'll make more sense of it in a moment, but if you're trying to create messaging that is meant to convince or persuade someone or to nudge or actually you know, affect a particular behavior or decision, most people, I think, tend to assume you want to tailor, really hyper-personalize, and boy, aren't we hearing all about that with AI in particular now. But in fact, it's very effective to, rather than hyper-personalize for every individual or every segment or what we can learn in like deeper silos of data about different types of humans, bring it back up a level and think about what are the commonalities, the universal things that, for that billboard that was just up, Think about how different people, maybe at a more conservative or more liberal end of a spectrum, or who are more hierarchical versus egalitarian in their values, or any number of different spectra you could graph on, would interpret an open-ended phrase like that. You can be using that strategy in your work to reach people, and it's not in a weirdly deceptive, duplicitous way where you're creating different messaging for different groups, but rather giving everybody a hook to hang on, basically, or something to latch on to. Um, that's hard to do. I mean, that's a, you're like, how, Jen? There's no, there's no method to that. But what it is, again, more of a mindset, which is, who am I trying to reach, and what are the differences between the folks that I'm trying to reach, and how could I create something that, at bare minimum, doesn't turn one or two of those segments off or turn them away or threaten them or, or sort of trigger something that is going to have them say, you're not for me or this brand is not aligned with my values. We're not trying to reach everyone. We're not trying to reach all people at all times. That's, that's a recipe for failure. But the key word here is you can use ambiguity to your advantage in your practice. 
And so with that, let me also add some thoughts about the, the nature of systems thinking. You hear that word a lot. I think systems thinking is having a moment. Like, are you, guys, are you guys hearing it everywhere all of a sudden? Or the concept of an experience ecosystem. You need to zoom out. You need to think about um, the larger system in which the people you're designing for are living and experiencing things. I will, I will share with you one of my favorite notions or sentiments in the world of system science and systems thinking. And it, I don't even know who to credit with the original no, quote. I know that it's part of, um, Peter Seng writes about it in some of his books. But the idea is basically that cause and effect are often much further apart in space and time than we realize. And so that basically has two implications. One is that you want to zoom out spatially, literally, to investigate the influences of things and people that are further away from your target than you normally would. So literally zoom out, like literally. And then also zoom out chronologically. Think about things that are happening further upstream than you would normally be inclined to think are relevant. And actually also, because of now we've got futures thinking and foresight and other practices that are growing in popularity, we're much more able to think about moving forward, downstream, anticipating things that we might not have had the ability to in the past. Um, and doing that, another common quote in this world around today's um, problems are often yesterday's solutions, right? So we're never going to seriously um, ever really be able to eliminate the fact that something we implement today could have unintended consequences later. But as practitioners of the work you do, even in just trying to quote-unquote reach a particular audience with a message or a value proposition – you can think a little bit more broadly about the context of the system in which you're reaching them and both for an ethical reason, avoid saying or doing things that are going to have unintended consequences later, but also the work that you are doing or the goal that you're trying to achieve is going to be more effective if you can include some of these things that are in that broader aperture. Let me give a quick example. Um, one of the projects that I did uh, last year, um, one of my favorites was with a large uh, life sciences company that makes an at-home colorectal cancer screening experience. And um, one of the things that they were trying to understand was out of everybody who had this, this screening that was sent to their home, and that's how it worked, that these patients would have it prescribed by their doctor and the kit would arrive at their home. Um, in theory, because the doctor prescribes this, there should have been a conversation that, you know, precluded this, and then, of course, they would have expected it. Why would not 100% of people complete the kit? Or, or whatever the number was, why wasn't it higher? Um, and so there was a lot of work that was done to understand who and how the, the, the patients used the kit. I'll leave that aside because the human factors of the experience were superb, and there was no issue whatsoever in the user experience itself. But what we did was we looked at that experience, and we zoomed way out, both spatially and chronologically, to look at the full system, which allowed us to identify, quote-unquote, leverage points. For example, in this case, we found that there was really important opportunities higher upstream in the experience when the doctor and the patient have their conversation, better expectation setting, and that was found to have a better effect downstream when someone received it as to their motivation to complete, et cetera. Um, and at the same time, zooming out kind of like broadly, not just in time, but just in the system, and identifying some very interesting influences on those patients that if you were really zeroed in on a particular, you know, this is the user, I am focused on them, you would have missed. Again, speaking broadly, because I can't reveal too many details, but a lot of the, the work that results in those really incredible, like, wow, that solution seems so simple. I can't believe no one ever thought about that before. Those happen when people actually zoom way out in space or time and start to look at the system that looks and feels like it's further away from your audience than normal. And then you start to connect those dots and realize, oh, holy cow, this thing is going to actually have an impact. So... If you just forget everything else we say today, please remember you should start zooming in and out in more ways than you're comfortable doing in both space and time. I spoke about apertures, so we can, we can kind of skip. This was to be the backdrop when I talked about zooming in and out, but you get the idea. So one of the things we wanted to share is these ideas of tips and tricks. Uh, the great thing about doing, for me, design work at least, is the opportunity to work with people who are smarter than me, which not necessarily a high bar to clear, but also who come from other areas than me. And as Jen was talking about systems, when we think about wicked problems, we think about the work being done around these wicked problems, we think about how people of different disciplines are coming together to share their knowledge, to share their expertise, to share their methods and approaches in order to construct opportunities to solve these things. Academia is incredibly siloed. Anybody who's, anybody work in academia? If I'm lying, 
let me know. <laughs> the people exist in departments. They exist in colleges. They exist in their research silos, right? And it's interesting to see how we never talk to one another. You would think we would, but we don't because we often get credit for getting tenure when we publish in our own fields, not in publishing someone else's fields. And so the design space really does have an opportunity to lead the way in showing how to create interdisciplinary, inter-knowledge, you inter-epistemic networks so that we can actually come forward with solutions. And so... Million dollar words over here. He's just yeah, showing That's off. a good word. That's I know word. words. I have the best words, um, <laughs> as, as someone once said. Um, so ethnography involves seeing the, tra- the transformative possibilities and patterns through an understanding of how things are connected or can be reconnected. I talk about innovation ethnography with my students a lot. Again, going back to the art example, for those of you who are artists, you're familiar with negative space. Sometimes seeing the spaces in between can reveal the image you're trying to represent. And if I gave my students a connect the dots and I said, complete an image, and notice I said complete an image, not the image, they are more likely going to connect dots from one to two to three to four to five to six. Maybe they're going to think about ways to reconfigure those dots, and then maybe the really creative ones are going to flip the paper over and draw something in the back, and maybe one's going to make a paper airplane out of it. (laughs) All which would be right answers to that instruction. And so ethnography is about how can we make these connections. I will add, ethnographers are often in the best position because we live in liminal spaces between groups. We live in between areas because we talk to all folks. And if you think about your own organizations, how frequently does that happen? Where are those spaces that people can connect, reconnect, and come together to share knowledge, perspectives, experiences, so that they can enrich each other's understanding of one another and also what potential they hold? I would, I would add to this too something to think about, uh, to give like an example of a project that, that um, I was able to work on is that we were doing a communications project where there's two branches of an organization that were merging, that they were in different parts of Canada. Uh, and so in this case, like a very much east meets west, the, the kind of urban east and the more rural west. And the idea was how can we communicate together as one organization when we have very different identities in these, in these different spaces and what would that look like? And so, you know, we went into field, we went to go visit the, the different branches of the organizations. We did kind of what we might think of traditional research work, doing interviews with stakeholders, folks that ran the organizations with some of their customers and their clients, as well as other people that had kind of known the organization and the media group around them. And then, you know, did some you know, broad survey work to get a sense of, again, how do, how do people that work in the organ and they're kind of circulating around the organization think about it? You know, what are, the, what are the three words that you think about when you say this organization's name? Some kind of fun, you know, thinking like this. But then uh, we had this nice set of data and got a sense of, okay, we're seeing these, like, these different stories kind of emerge here. But then when we, we realized something that when we were going to each of these places, that, uh, again, kind of a, a gap in almost our knowledge is that we'd get there, it was, it was um, you know, February and March, and so it was, it was snow on the ground, it was cold, um, we had to wear big boots. And, and then we would find every time we walked in the office, there would be this giant pile of boots by the door. And this is something that we didn't think about because I'm just taking my shoes off. Uh, but then we realized that we saw it continuously in every single spot that we went. And it became this little space we realized where people would get together to gather for a second to take off their shoes and, and hang out and talk for a second. And we realized that this idea of boots on the ground was, was actually a unifying form of identity that we saw across the organization in different parts of the country. And so just this, the small act of both noticing and something that nobody ever talked about. Nobody said, well, my boots, that's what this is about, you know? Because that also sounds weird to say that. But it's something that we saw by being there with people. And so there is this, this incredible value, both of this idea of seeing those dots that people will say. They can also be, again, social silences or just things like this at these moments that nobody might say anything about their shoes. But it turns out that that's actually one of the big kind of social spots that, that brought them together. So that actually became one of the pillars of the, of the campaign itself. So that's just something else to think about. It's fun to connect those dots and don't forget to look at your shoes. Some more, some more specific tips and tricks. Uh, you know, Jen mentioned experience ecosystem mapping. One of the things that I talk about when I talk about experience ecosystems, especially related to brand experience, is that customer experience and user experience and employee experience and service experience and digital experience and patient experience. We, did anybody remember Mad Libs from growing up? Right? It's like we live today in the noun experience age. <laughs> Just throw in a noun, and now, you, now it's an area of, of consulting and work. And so we can think about, you can't talk about brand experience without talking about customer, user, 
especially employee. I teach a course on employee experience. Your employee should be your number one brand ambassador. If they're not, you're doing something wrong, right? So it's not just about your customer. If you want to improve customer experience, start with employee experience. How often do you think about the metrics in each space are misaligned? That what the customer experience people are being evaluated on is different or at odds with what the user experience people are being evaluated on are different or at odds with the employee experience, et cetera, et cetera. So shockingly, the experience strategy is misaligned because the metrics and what's important in each space is misaligned. And there's no, and I'm sure Jen will, I saw her bring the microphone to her mouth. <laughs> See, I'm an ethnographer. I notice things. Um, what's the experience strategy or is one? Is there one or is it absent as well? So what are the experience domains you're dealing with? Yeah. How are they evaluated? How are they structured? And how, what's the overall experience strategy that can integrate them? You know, I wasn't thinking about this example for today, but I, I thought of it as we were chatting, and I want to share it with you because I have to assume, I mean, how many of you are familiar with, with mapping of some kind? Journey mapping, experience mapping? Okay, good. I mean, I think at this point in 2023, everyone and their mom has done experience mapping and personas and all kinds. So forget that. I don't care what artifact you make, um, but, to, but to add on to, yes, and what Gary was just saying around the notion that everything is an experience now. And I think the key is that we, we do still get too caught up in the employee experience versus some other form of, you know, the, the broader context. It's so, so much less about human centeredness, which is the term du jour, right? Is great because it represents a departure from what came before when we weren't even thinking about the human on the other end of the experience. All for human-centered design. It's it's probably why most of us are in this room. But human-centered design kind of does a little bit of a disservice to the notion that if you just center the humans that you've identified as your user or your consumer, you are really going to miss that broader systems view that I mentioned earlier. And when you go to map things, that's where that really becomes a challenge. So what I wanted to give this example for... So for, for those of you who are already doing these kinds of things or working on teams where part of your practice includes mapping or persona development or whatever other artifacts you're generating, um, and I say mapping broadly, service blueprints, journey maps, experience, whatever it is, um, we did work with the, um, the National Fire Protection Association, and one of the projects was focused on um, rural and elderly folks, and, and their whole mission is fire and life safety. And they were really trying to understand where can we and how do we reach these folks? It was really largely campaign and messaging, you know, focused work, but really understanding how, where, and when to reach folks to really actually move the needle, to get them to engage in the behaviors they needed to engage in, things around smoke detectors and safer cooking practices, and, you know, if they're in rural areas because they're further away from nearby fire departments, what do they do around their house and their grounds to keep things safe and, and protected from fire and such? And, and of course, as an organization, they're full of experts. They know all the things that actually really do move the needle on the behaviors. The challenge is actually conveying this to people and getting them to do it. And we set out to, at their request, map this, create a journey map of somebody so that we can identify the points. Like we all are taught to believe we, we make a journey map so we can identify the opportunities and then we do something at each of those touch points and magically the thing happens. And we were, it took us like all the five minutes to be like, there isn't going to be a journey map for rural elderly. Like, that is one map. Um, and through a lot of research and everything of the, of the nature you've heard us talk about today, what we were able to actually do instead was realize we had a lot of ahas, like, hmm, that's odd. And instead of creating a map that had any kind of chronological flow to it, we identified what really were sort of like windows of opportunity, where people were primed to hear and listen to messaging about fire and life safety. Turned out for this group, it was things like um, when they move, or if they experience a fall or other health event, or um, when... They have children, especially if they're elderly, if they have children and grandchildren around. It primes people to be more aware of their home and how safe it is, to be more open or willing to install things like fire, smoke detectors, etc. And so the, the mapping that we did didn't look like your you know, typical journey map or whatever. If you Google journey map, you get that same format. Um, it was something different that, you know, that we didn't, there wasn't a model for it, but it was very easy to say, these are windows of opportunity and we need to identify them and then create the channels and the, the directives on how to reach people in those places. And I say places, I mean literally space-time context scenario. What I'm getting at here is, guys, like, forget the stupid models that are out there. Forget the best practices about how to map. When we say to engage in experience or ecosystem mapping, do it in the way that serves the data and the humans that you're trying to work for. Don't, don't try to make it look like when you Google that form of a map or, or a blueprint or whatever. If it looks totally different and does a different thing, all the better. So quit following those rules and kind of be more open to when we map a system, it's going to have to look really different from when we map a different system over there. And there isn't going to be a recipe for it. So 
that's one thing I'd love is if people go back to their teams and are like, hey, next thing we have to create, we're not doing a journey map. We're going to do something else. Because of time, we want people to be able to ask questions. I'm going to fly through some of this stuff. Uh, social identity theory, social identity inventory. How do people identify themselves as a member of a group? One of the, one of the techniques we can use is if you had a list of, if you had a piece of paper with one through ten and had people respond to, I am a blank, hopefully not, you know, a bad word, but you can sit there and say, I am a father, I am a brother, I am a son, I am a New England Patriots fan, I am a sociologist, I am a whatever. And we can think about which one is most important based on which one do they provide first. And that's a way of, and then you can think about which one becomes more salient or more important in what context and engage people in a follow-up interview to ask them about those things that they raise. And also meaning mapping. What do words, as Adam mentioned, actually mean? Not just dictionary meaning, but what do they mean in their use and what do people mean by them when they use them as well? And so we want to get to some nudges. You all get nudges. <laughs> we talked about identity protective cognition. It's always vital that we check how our own cultural values and positions affect our reactions and influence, influences our evaluations of ideas. So always stop, pause, think about what is my own perspective adding to this and how is it making my data say things that it might say but might not say and how might someone else see it in a different way. Taking a place of an other, both another and an other. You know, this idea of an other, you know, a marginalized group or someone that's been stigmatized or lives on the outside. Have awareness of your vantage point, how it allows you to see from your point of view and also what you might be missing from that perspective. And this is where diverse teams really comes in handy. And diversity can mean a lot of different things here. But the idea of getting other positions and other perspectives on an environment to see what other people are making of that situation. And finally, as we talked about... I love, you know, I mentioned earlier that phrase, uh, today's problems were often yesterday's solutions. In my design practice, I try to use the word solution as, as little as possible. I don't believe in solutions. I don't think there's such thing as a final solution to any problem. What I think you have are interventions that change a part of a system that have ripple effects throughout the system. You know it's going to have effects that you can predict, and you also know it's going to have effects you can't predict. And so I, I love when I talk about this with clients or others. I use examples like invasive species. This is from the episode of the Simpsons where they've got the invasive species, you know, and they say, well, all right, no worries. We can, we'll just introduce a bunch of snakes. Well, what happens when the snakes, they've overrun the city? Well, we'll just, we'll add a bunch of, uh, we've got gorillas, a special breed of gorilla that's going to take care of all the snakes. It'll be great. Um, and I just think that's, that's one lasting bit too, that I, I hope that if you think through the practice that you're engaged in, when you ask yourself, okay, with this thing we're going to actually do, whether it's a message, a campaign, a product that we're putting in the world, not just because you want to care about what happens in the future, but it'll actually affect the effectiveness of the thing you're introducing into the world. So I think with that, we'd love to kind of get ourselves, keeping it simple in this case, offering if anyone have any questions or things they want to ask, you're welcome to kind of get in line. We can talk through this piece if you like, and then just let you know about this in case you're interested in some of the stuff we've been sharing today. This is a, it's called a catchword. You can text this, uh, this phrase, SXNW23-EXD, to this number, and it'll send you a PDF of the kind of a summary of what we've been talking about today. It's not the slides. It's a summary of, the, of, the, of, of what we were talking about. Yes. So there we go. Okay. Right. Yeah. Thanks, Ken. Good questions. We're not done yet. We have questions still. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, great job. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, great, great uh, session here. Uh, Jen, you had touched base on un un unintended consequences regarding uh, some uh, advertising techniques and so forth. And uh, that, that started a, a thought process here, especially regarding uh, social media platforms. Uh, <laughs> uh, regarding ethical advertising associated with social media platforms such as Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, what are your thoughts on the use of addictive brain hijacking technology associated with ma manipulative advertising technology? For example, brain hijacking technology includes the use of social validation feedback loops and intermittent variable rewards, which has been launched onto the world. If you saw the social uh, dilemma, uh, some of you would know what I'm talking about, but yep. this has been injected into advertising. And I think we could agree it's good if we lived in a shopping mall 24 hours a day. But uh, regarding the example of Facebook Cambridge Analytica, this technology is now crossed from yeah. consumerism to politics. So I was just curious of your thoughts. Uh, so you asked my thoughts on it. I think it's fucked up. And if you guys, <laughs> if you guys engage in that, 
you're missing the message. I don't know why you sat through this whole session. Um, I will say this. I think that, you know, especially in the world of branding and advertising and marketing and selling, we are trying to persuade or convince people to do something. So to really own the fact that you are literally trying to change something that's probably not yours to change and come to terms with that and decide how you feel about it. And everything you just described, I think, is a really good example of how we can get really smart about things really quickly. All we have to do is think and do a lot of research. Just because we, you know, the age, just because we can doesn't mean we should. But I would, I love to draw on, I'm a huge fan of Buckminster Fuller. If those of you are not familiar of him, Google Bucky Fuller, read anything you can find by him. But he does have one quote that is, for example, my guiding light. And I would encourage all of you to use this as well, which is, it is not for me to change you. It is for me to ask how I can serve you while preserving your degrees of freedom, as many degrees of freedom as possible, something along those lines. And um, I would argue that while we can absolutely hack through neuroscience, behavior science, um, classic rhetoric and like perception science, these things that I have found fascinating and studied myself, the more you get to know how to use these things to your advantage, the more precarious ethical position you have. And that's a lot of responsibility. And um, if your goal with that knowledge is to sell things to people, like, I don't want to know you. So that's, that's my answer. Yeah. One thing I would add to that, too, that, that has stood out to me is, is, is responses to that is with the rise of the creator economy and decentralized networks that they're seeing a lot more new monetization models that are based on the content that you produce and the, how you get eyeballs on it will also then pay yeah. the producers themselves. And so understanding also where's the flow of money, right? If it's just going to go straight back into Facebook, yeah. then there's a question of ethics there and transparency. So while decentralization by itself, you know, it needs a lot of, a lot of work. Like there are these questions of how we then see where funds flow for resources when people put content out there. So that's something else I would just, if we're not careful, that kind of practice is going to put ourselves, you know, we're going to run ourselves out of existence anyway. So, All right. Thank you for the knowledge and your experience. I'm just wondering how to map a business-to-business -business ecosystem where personas or archetypes, as you prefer, are a diverse set of humans' characteristics. And could you please share some tips and tell some cases uh, where you had to map behavior of a company like deciders, influencers, and etc.? Yeah, you said B2B, right? Is that yeah. particular interest? I will say this really fast. I know the personas in particular, like anything, they seem to go in and out of style, right? You remember when it was like everybody was doing journey maps and personas were old and stupid, and then it was like mm, journey maps are over because we made a bunch of those and they didn't do anything. So personas are back, but now they're behavioral. Okay, um, point is, they're going to go in and out of style, and really the key is to be asking, what is it supposed to do for you? I know you mentioned something earlier that reminded me that like, there is the notion of both, there is sense-making, and then there's decision-making. And you really need tools that support both. So when it comes to B2B, I would argue B2B shouldn't really be any different from B2C, because what is the other B? The second B is still humans. Um, but also, when it comes to the point of like trying to map an ecosystem and understand it, this is where if personas don't work because of the nature of what you're trying to map, forget a persona. Think about a scenario-based map. Think about different ways to um, represent context. Um, there are so many ways to, quote-unquote, map or visualize the lay of the land um, and, and when, with behavior, which I know you mentioned, one of the tools I really like is something called the behavior change wheel, um, or sometimes it's called COMB, the COMB framework. You guys can Google this. There are lots and lots of behavior change frameworks in the world, but this is one that I find in, in particular kind of suits itself well for mapping because what you can often do is map a journey or a scenario or a flow or whatever you'd like to map, the way that things connect to each other. And then you can also layer on top of that knowledge that falls into the categories of the COMB framework. I'll, this is for a whole other talk, but COMB is basically a way of understanding barriers and facilitators of behavior in three categories capability, opportunity, and motivation. That's the CO and the M. And then what's nice is that you can actually layer on top of your map these things that exist. The other thing I would say, and I would encourage you and others, especially in answer to this question, is look into other forms of mapping that come from systems thinking. There are things called causal loop diagrams and other forms of rich pictures. You, you notice we didn't make a giant bulleted list of these. It's because the point here is let your fingers do the Googling. It's less about a particular map and it's more about taking what a discipline has done and just grab what works and throw the rest away. So there are lots of forms of mapping. You don't need personas if they're if it's too complex or they don't help the, the you know the output that you're you're going for. I want to I, I want to tap into one thing you said. You said diverse in a number of ways. And a lot of things can represent diversity. Diverse 
in what ways to you and why is that important? And are the ways that's important to you the ways that should be important? Because you can walk into a room where everyone looks the same and uncover a lot of different ways in which that group is diverse, right? And so this notion of diversity, I should mention that I'm one of the creators of the first ever in the country DEI major at a university, at Bentley University. Um, it's not a thing to be proud of because we created it last year. <laughs> there should have been one before that. And so this notion of diversity is, is sticky and important, going back to meaning. And so we need to think, when we think about they're diverse in a number of different ways, why are we assigning these ways? Are these the ways that are really important? Are there other ways that are important that we haven't thought about yet? And are we pigeonholing or ascribing categories to people that aren't theirs, that we're giving to them? So just like another thing to layer on top of that to add a little bit more complexity, not that you already don't have enough, but to think about that as, as well. You could add to that, there's, there's a book by Michael Solomon called The New Chameleons. That's, that's a really good way of seeing like, the more fluid ways that people identify now. And so that's, it's a helpful in terms of just getting like, how, we, how can we talk about gender in more equitable ways? Um, how can we talk about age? Different groups like that. So, so new, the new chameleons might also be helpful in that space. If you don't want to read the book, you can go to Experience by Design podcast, experiencexdesign.com, <laughs> where we interviewed Michael Solomon about his book, and we have stickers up front. Speaking of marketing. Yes, yeah. sir. <laughs> hey, I'm wondering, uh, as uh, anthropologists and sociologists professionals, how you handle the marketing agenda? Because we are always running and never, never have time for research on this level. Uh, so... The marketing agenda advice? sounds like the deep state. No, 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 no. <laughs> I was I not mean, aware there was an agenda. Should no, no, I be sorry. worried? I mean, I mean about, about time, because we have, I don't know, uh, projects about four weeks, and only one week for research and things like that. It buys down risk. Find, find the ways in your organization that you can make that case. It's never as simple as getting in front of the C-suite and saying, it buys down risk, demonstrating it, finding lightweight ways to build in some form of research that then can prove its value by either mitigating or averting some other kind of later cost. I know that's a very, a very overgeneralized statement, but that is truly, at the end of the day, the strategy that is going to be effective is demonstrating that this kind of understanding, this rich understanding up front, literally buys down risk and the cost of that risk as it would otherwise be you know, perpetuated through a system or through a product development process or whatever it is is happening. But I feel you. I feel you, man, as someone who I'm way more, I spend more time in industry than academia and I don't have a great solution. Either. I would just add, if you don't have enough time to do things right, you're going to spend a lot of time doing things wrong. Yeah. <laughs> right? Put that on a bumper sticker. Um, you know, so it's like, what's your choice? Are we going to, are we going to understand the people we're trying to reach out to and meet? Um, in ways that matter, and then design around that? Or are we going to, you know, reach in the dark and think of what design at them or design against them? I mean, it's a philosophical, organizational, cultural choice. Find some examples that your leadership really loves or says they want you to try to do as well as them, and then go and find the research that those organizations did to lead to that output. Yeah, because what I would add, what add to that, too, I think it's a great point, is that um, in the same way that we haven't talked about methods today, which is on purpose, you can look at like the, the, the forms of research both digitally and in field and then see what can be done quickly, what can be done for a good price point that you're already at, and then find examples that work really well and field test some of the small ones um, is another way. And also other stuff like Nielsen Norman did, did some research some years ago that like basically for every $1 spent on UX, you get $100 in ROI. So it's like you, there's also stats that people like stats. Um, you can find like that. You can kind of make the case. So again, so same like Google some tools. There's a lot of tools out there we can use. We can do one more, right? You guys are yeah, going to kick yeah, us yeah. off? Yeah. You kick us out when you need to. Yeah, good. Um, I liked what you were saying about like throwing out the frameworks and thinking about what works. Um, in my experience, agencies really like sort of proprietary frameworks and they want to be able to sell them and they want like repeatable process, like you fill in these boxes like the same way. And so I'm just trying to think if you have any oh, suggestions for what I should tell my boss when I, about not kind of pigeonholing us into a box. Yeah, it's such a it's such a like delicate dance, right? Where you don't want to literally be creating things that are novel in every way and every time you do something or the, or engaging or collaborating with others, but then the more you want to standardize something for some level of repeatability or efficiency, of course you get stuck in that world where everything is, you know, a nail if you've got the hammer or such. I would say the way that I tend to think about this and the way that I have found this to work in my practice and with those I collaborate with is to realize that if you are going to either templatize something or you know create a, a framework or a conceptual model to make sure that you're creating it at the um, 
I'll say the level or the altitude, that there's a lot of flexibility baked into it, right? So rather than, like, take the design thinking thing, the, I don't say the method, the five, if you Google design thinking, right, you get the same five thing, like, listed out there, and everyone's got their proprietary version of it, and they're all the same. That's a really good example of, to me, that's a framework that's fine to, like, we're, we're using this framework because it's so high altitude that there's room for you to then have the, the, the space to play, the space to challenge, to push boundaries, and to not be locked into one way of thinking. Um, and frankly, that, that challenge is the reason you don't get so many disciplines working with each other. I have this dream of creating a Rosetta Stone someday that basically takes terms, for example, in economics, path dependency, in um, some other fields, it's uh, legacy thinking, you know, and like, or uh, the concept of a leverage point or an attractor state in systems thinking and, and stasis or equilibrium. You know, there are so many things that if you can keep the framework or the conceptual models that you work with at a high enough altitude or level, you can hold space for breaking and playing with the work that happens inside of it. I get that's like kind of an abstract answer, but that's the way that I tend to think about it because you're probably never going to be able to say, we're not going to follow a process. We're not going to, you know, like, we're not going to, we don't have a process. Um, I also will say, and, and I, whether or not this is relevant for you guys, I don't know, but just as an example, when I talk about design and the design process, I like the double diamond diagram. You may be familiar with that. It's from the UK Design Council. It's like over a decade old at this point, but it's a really good example of a framework that is both enough to provide, hey, we understand what we're doing, we go through periods of divergent and convergent thinking with these aims, um, but again, it's so wide open, I guess it's not a process, it's a framework. And I guess, I'll stop talking on that note. What you wanna work with and try to focus on are frameworks or conceptual models, not processes. And that'll hold the space for you to have that flexibility. Thank you. Right on, yeah. Right on, I think that, that's about it, so thank you all. Thanks, guys. If anybody wants a sticker, Don't forget. by all means, we've got them printed just for this conference. So thanks again for joining us on our South by Southwest journey. We hope that you enjoyed the pathway with us and have some interesting takeaways and, and new ways of thinking about it. So we're going to leave things open after this one, but we're always happy to hear from you. Get your thoughts, what takeaways you had from the conversations and what you'd like to see more of. As always, you can shoot us a message over at feedback at experiencexdesign.com or jump in the conversation on our LinkedIn page. Thanks for taking this journey with us as the experience design movement, as it is a movement, is picking up steam, ramping up and spreading like a virus or a fungus if you're a fan of The Last of Us TV Good show. Point. Either one. And if you are an experience design company or an experience design person, human, doing the good work of experience design and you're interested in being profiled on our show or sponsoring an episode, make sure you reach out to us at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. Had some great inquiries. We appreciate all of your interest and it's going to lead to some fantastic conversations and great shows coming up. And please make sure to send us your own personal feedback, what you like, what you'd like to see more of, and what takeaways really stick with you from our shows. We're always, always, always really happy to hear from you. So with that, everybody, we hope you have a good week. Hope you have a good time. Be safe, be healthy, be kind, and please do be here on the next Experience by Design. <laughs>